You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Nicoletta, and I'm a marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And I'm Simone. I'm a law student and Nicoletta's friend who likes to talk about sex a lot. This week, we are joined by Dr. Shannon Chavez. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and an ASEC certified sex therapist with a private practice called SHAPE, which is so brilliant because that stands for Sexual Health and Pleasure Enhancement Center in Beverly Hills, 90210, where she provides individuals and couples therapy, sex and relationship coaching, and workshops on sexual health and wellness. Her work focuses on adult sex education Education, integrating sexuality and spirituality, and sexual discovery towards personal growth. She's frequently on national news, radio, and media as a sexual health expert, and now on Sluts and Scholars. Welcome. Yay, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you guys for having me. And one of the things that I didn't mention in your bio is that you do a lot of work with endometriosis. And we're recording in March, which is endo, uh, Endometriosis Awareness Month. And I feel like this is something that's like super not talked about. So take it away. Yes, it's not talked about. And I actually didn't know I had endometriosis until uh, last year. So over 200 million women have endometriosis, and this is a worldwide phenomena. So it's not something that is only happening here in the U.S. They actually say one in 10 women here in the U.S. have it. And I was one of those women. And why it goes undiagnosed or misdiagnosed for so long is because the only way you can get an official diagnosis is through surgery, which is where I got my diagnosis. I went under laparoscopic surgery to find out. And then they do that and say, yes, you have it. So for people who don't know, what is endometriosis? So endometriosis, I, I believe, is an autoimmune condition. And basically it causes your tissue or your endometrial lining, which basically is a tissue that supports every one of our organs. It's not only in the reproductive area. So uh, basically, we have endometrial lining on all of the organs in our body, but where we tend to have it the most or where we see endometriosis form is in our reproductive organs. So basically, this endometrial lining starts to grow out of control, and it can grow into what they call endometriomas, which are these big, gnarly growths on our organs that tend to fill with fluid and blood, and they, they start to, to take on a life of their own. And we can also get fibroids, which are types of growths on our organs, too, that can grow in the uterus, they can grow on the ovaries. And so most people with endometriosis, like myself, have both, both fibroids and endometriomas mm. that cause a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort, they can cause infertility. So it's a real beast of a condition, and it, it's, it's painful. It's, it's kind of a silent disease because you can't actually look at someone and say, oh, they have endometriosis, but they may have a lot of the symptoms that would diagnose it. Painful heavy periods, uh, pain in other parts of their body because of the inflammation that this tissue forms and grows on other mm -hmm. organs. So it's, it's kind of a, a thing that I think people need to be aware of. I thought for years that I just had painful periods. 
I just have heavy, painful periods. I didn't think it was a problem because I thought all women had painful periods. I had no idea that this was yeah. a condition. And you mentioned you were diagnosed last year, which is incredible, but also super not uncommon. Like most people with endometriosis, like do not get diagnosed till they're like 20s or 30s, right? Yes, actually seven to eight years on average for women to get diagnosed. Why so long? Because, because people don't. <laughs> Sorry, go. You're yes. more passionate. I don't about have it. endo. I don't have endo, but I have a lot of. I'm part of this like women's, or I was part of this women's health collective in Los Angeles, and quite a few of the people had um, endometriosis. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> no, but you're right. Uh, you can. It can get misdiagnosed. For me, it was misdiagnosed as uh, thyroid issues, which I also have in combination with endometriosis. So hormone issues are just part of my entire health profile. But uh, misdiagnosis or they, they settle with the symptoms. This is just how my body is. So I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, and again, gynecology doesn't know a lot about endometriosis as far as where it comes from or why women have it. But Is they, this like lack of funding or lack of research? Like yes, why? All, all of the above. Why? Because people just don't care about women's bodies. Yes. Well, maybe. people don't really believe female pain. I think that has a lot to do with it too. It's like a huge component of it. Like you said, like you just have pain. You just thought you had painful periods and that's probably what your doctor told you. And like, you didn't know that. I mean, I don't know how your painful periods manifest, but I know some of my friends with endometriosis, they literally cannot go to work. They have to sit on their bed and like bleed onto a towel with like a hot water bottle. No, that's exactly what happens. And your no pain, one's like, hey, that's not normal. Right, right. And, and, it, and it starts to affect your mood. I mean, I had depression and anxiety for so long because your hormones are out of balance. You don't feel good. You also get this thing called endobelly where certain foods or things that you ingest cause distension of their extension of the belly where you you look like you're about five months pregnant because your belly Whoa. just becomes so bloated and inflamed and this can be anything I have a lot of endo triggers which can be sugar alcohol certain foods so it's it's really it's difficult you know it, it's something that a lot of women deal with and feel isolated around and I didn't start to feel better until I found a community where people actually were talking about endometriosis and I started saying okay Okay, this is, I'm not the only one. There's yeah. a lot of people dealing with this. So there's got to be a lot of treatment options, which is a whole nother journey around once you get diagnosed, what do you do for treatment? Now, I did the surgery, which is one way to get diagnosed and to help reduce the pain. And when I had the surgery, I was diagnosed as uh, severe stage four. So basically that means that there are a lot of endometriomas. The ovaries are in bad shape. I mean, I had these gnarly endometriomas that were basically twisting and tangled all around my ovaries. And the difficulty with that is it causes a lot of damage to the organs to remove them. Obviously they're feeding off of that, feeding off mm. of the organs. So you can remove it, which is what laparoscopic surgery does, but you may cause a lot of scar tissue and damage to your organs along the way. So on one end, you're reducing the pain and getting rid of them. And on the other end, for, especially for women that haven't had children, it can cause a lot of damage. And does it grow back? Yes. So I have a gnarly one that they drained and it comes back and I should just name it because it's a part of my body and I can feel it, especially around ovulation. Wow. It, it just throbs. I can feel it like a growth in this right, right ovary. 
And is this, is this genetic? How does this happen? Like, are there predispositions for this? They don't know enough about it. If you read every article and It's like, we don't know a lot. We don't know a lot. They, they don't know. That's the thing that frustrates me as someone who has it is how do they not know? And it goes back to, is there not enough funding and attention around where this comes from? And because it's a global issue, I mean, I've had a lot of theories about, all right, maybe it's birth control or the food we're eating or all these different things. They do know, like any autoimmune condition, that stress can definitely amplify it or turn on certain genetics. Yeah. So I do believe there could be an epigenetic connection to how uh, endometriosis comes about. So it is uh, something that more women deal with in child-rearing ages. So I do think there is a hormonal component where when your hormone levels are changing as we age, it can start causing this tissue to grow. I mean, I feel like it's a, an obvious answer to a question, but like, how does this impact somebody's sexual functioning? Yes. and connection in a partnership. Yes, quite a bit, actually. I think, for one, it causes severe pain uh, with sexual activity and low libido. So for myself, I've always... Because you want to avoid the pain. Right, right. And for me, I've always had a high libido, so I didn't have too much of the libido issues. But for many, it causes... Uh, you know, and, and a lot of it's physical and emotional because you don't want your body touched. You feel, uh, mm. you know, uh, you know, uncomfortable in this entire pelvic area, so that that becomes an issue of avoiding sex because of the discomfort. How do you learn to like accept and love your body? Because I'm hearing that there's so many components. It feels like your body is like failing you in some ways. There's not a lot of answers, and there can be physical um, ramifications of like, like you said, extended or distended stomach, mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure that can have people questioning their own, I don't know, self-confidence and body image. Like, how do you deal with that? I think you definitely go through a lot of grief with your body. You know, you're, you're, they're mm -hmm. angry, you're in denial, you're, you know, you're sad. And I, I think it's, it's difficult because, you, you know, you're going through all these changes in your body and you want to blame something, yeah. you know, and you start racking your brain about what, what actually caused this or what did I do wrong or sh should I have taken better care of myself in my 20s, which was all the things that I said to myself. But I think it's just a, <clears throat> it's a continual healing journey. You have to say, you know, this body is the body I have and it's mm. not going to change and I may not get answers or a magical treatment or pill that's going to take it away. So how can I manage it? And that's the phase I'm in now with the final diagnosis is how can I manage it and how can I be my best healthcare advisor? So when you finally get diagnosed, you have to kind of be your best healthcare uh, advisor, you know, knowing your body, because you're going to get a lot of different information, you know, try this or take this low dose mm -hmm. that. And, and I think for myself, I had to kind of step back from all that and say, you know, what, what do I feel comfortable doing? I didn't want to take synthetic hormones because I've had a lot of issues with birth control in the past. And I think maybe it's a culprit. Maybe it's part of why mm. I have this. So, so is that that's the, like main, the most common, right. that's like the most common quote unquote treatment yes. for people with endo. They're just like, oh, you got endo? take this breast control. And like, that's it. Right. Honestly, the options are not great. The other is taking a medication that puts you through medical menopause and basically tries to just suppress all your natural hormone activity. That was something that I also didn't think was a great option. You know, mm. the last thing I want to do is go through, through menopause after going through all these 
painful symptoms. So that's option number two. That wasn't great. And then thirdly was another surgery, going in and doing an even more intensive surgery to, uh, by an expert. There are people out there that are even more specialized in laparoscopics and use lasers and all this fancy technology to get in there and remove everything as, as best they can. But again, that's not... Uh, guaranteed either. So for me, I said, mm-hmm. do I really want to go under the knife again and have my belly cut open and do all this stuff? Uh, it, it was not a great option. So the path that I'm taking, which I think a lot of women may find as, as not the most uh, path to pain-free symptoms, is just anti-inflammatory lifestyle. So reducing foods that I know are going to activate my endo. I know, I mean, I love sugar. I have a big sweet tooth. It's probably one of the biggest triggers Mm. to the endometriosis. Mm. So, uh, and every now and then I splurge and say, hey, whatever, I'm going to have what I want to have and I'll just be in pain for a few days. But then I know when I reduce and get back on track, I'm feeling better. So I I think that's also something people can do because endometriosis, like many autoimmune conditions, can be uh, managed really well with anti-inflammatory diets or doing a a diet, a paleo diet, or things that are going to be helpful for your body. And just to make sure I understand exactly what endometriosis is, so you mentioned it's like endometrial tissue like growing in parts of your body where it's not supposed to, but endometrial tissue is only supposed to be in your uterus, right? Or is it supposed to be other places? Actually, that's what I originally thought, that it was only in our, the endometrial lining was only in the uterus because that's what we we shed during menstruation. But through my research, I found that we actually have endometrial tissue all throughout our body. It's kind of that, it supports a lot of our organs. And this made a lot of sense with my diagnosis because I was having a lot of digestive and stomach issues and was doing a lot of testing around my stomach. And I found uh, a lot of antibodies in my uh, parietal lining of the stomach. So that made sense to me because there's endometrial tissue uh, surrounding the organs in the digestive system. So for me, I thought, all right, well, that makes sense. Maybe there's some endometriomas forming in this area as well. So I think that's something that's interesting too. Some people will report in their cases that they don't have any issues in their reproductive area and they have endometrioma Mm. on the lungs. They can have it on the brain. I've read so many cases where it can be basically in any or any part of the body, any part of the body that we have endometrial tissue. What are the medical worries though? Like is, yes, it's painful and that's awful. Can it cause other things? That's a good question. There's a lot of studies that show, and this is where I'm interested in the thyroid connection because I have thyroid problems. So they've done a lot of studies and most of the studies do show that these are sort of conditions that can be uh, coinciding conditions. So people that have, yes, so it can cause other 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 issues, other diseases. Uh, for myself, it, I believe it has, has caused some of this thyroid dysfunction mm. as well. It just makes sense. So your, your body is trying to fight off these endometriomas, your hormones are out of balance, and that's going to affect your, your other organs that are, uh, you know, that need your thyroid and your hormone functions to be, to be working well. So in these instances where the endometrial tissue is growing, like has nothing to do with the reproductive organs, um, I know this is like a pretty radical treatment for endometriosis, but some people like Lena Dunham have had hysterectomies. Um, As a treatment, would that 
support uh, treatment for the other kind of endometriosis that you're talking about? Well, that's uh, a lot of people will go that route, especially if, depending on the severity. So I, I'm one of those cases, stage four. So there's just, it's just really, it's really messy down there. There's so many endometriomas at this point. So it, it would be an option for people that are in just such severe pain that want to get rid of that pain. They're not worried about uh, having children and they just want to get it out of there. But the problem with that is if it is on other organs in your body, or if you just have a condition that triggers the endometriosis, it could just start attacking another part of the body. So that's wow. something that I considered. Well, that's an issue. I mean, you can't take everything out. So what do you do if yeah. that's sort of what you're, you're predisposed to and it's just going to start growing on other parts of the body? I can't believe how fucking common this is and how fucking painful it is and how under-fucking-researched it is. I'm just, like, getting really angry right now. No, I get angry, too. And I, I see these commercials now. Actually, for the first time in years have I seen a commercial where they actually have Talk this about it. medication out. And I've asked a lot of physicians that I know, is this something that's going to work? I mean, it's a... a the first endometriosis-only medication, and I wish I knew the name of it now, but I, I don't remember the name. It's, it's on, you'll see it on TV if you're watching TV now, but it, it's supposed to be something that addresses the pain. I don't think it addresses the root issue, and that's kind of where I am with all my health issues. What's the root issue? You know, we can manage and, and, and address the symptoms, but what the hell's causing this? That's what I want to know. Let's get to the root of it and see if there's something there. You know, and because it's such a big issue, again, 200 million women, and that's all we know of. There's probably so many more. Who just think they have it. heavy periods or painful periods. Exactly. So I, I would love for there to be more research to figure out what the hell is causing it. I mean, it could be something really simple, environmental or something we're eating or medication we're taking. I mean, there could be so many things that could give us answers. Astrology. 100% <laughs> joking. 100% fucking joking. That there are some people who would say that we've just had folks who have been more of the witchy folks, which I myself am sort of as well. And so sometimes our listeners love that, our other witchy listeners, and sometimes our science-based <laughs> listeners are like, what is this pseudoscience? Um, so we Hashtag support both Simone of you. the skeptic. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm kind of witchy too, I have yeah, to same. admit. Yeah. So what's your sign? <laughs> but I think it's it's a bigger <gasps> cultural issue, right? Like treatment of this is like treating other chronic things. A lot of people just go right for how do we fix the symptom? Right. How do we like do pain management as opposed to like what is the cause? Exactly. You know, and I've done every type of from uh, Western medicine to, you know, everything from energy work to acupuncture. acupuncture. And I think for people that are on this journey, you, you should try different things. You just never know. I mean, I've been so curious. What if it is something, you know, out of the ordinary that's going to take my symptoms away? Yeah. Because I've heard stories, you know, I went to a, you know, Reiki worker and all of a sudden they lifted something and now my endometriosis pain was gone. So I became kind of hungry and hopeful for something outside of the surgeries or the birth control or the other options that I have been mm. hearing. So you never know. I, I'm kind of a, a open but skeptical too. I think you just have to know your body. It's just, we, we had another episode talking about vaginal pain um, and if... Pelvic pain. Oh, sorry. Yeah, talking about pelvic pain. But if the issue can be treated, if like endometriosis pain can be treated with birth control... What if then the birth control causes other genital pelvic pain? 
Exactly. It's that like, was my issue with taking birth control. I had so many issues with it. And I had been on it for since I was 15 for painful yeah. periods. So I, oh. you know, had this relationship with it where I didn't think it was a good option. And, and I don't think any type of birth control is really safe. And that's a value I practice even in, in therapy with my clients is, you know, non-hormonal options, especially for sexual wellness. So that was the last thing I wanted to do was take some synthetic pill that, again, they don't know. What, what else mm-hmm. it could be causing. Do you yeah. decide to share your personal experience with clients and do you feel like they find it helpful? Because yes. as clinicians, I know we're always walking the line between like, how much should I disclose? Am I disclosing it for a reason that, you know, is helpful for the client? But since you're on this journey yourself, like, how do you deal with that? Yes, I do disclose a lot about it because again, it's something that not a lot of people talk about. And so I want to be an advocate to talk about it and to help women either get diagnosed or to just validate their experience, especially if I'm seeing them in sex therapy and they're saying, oh, I'm not in the mood, you know, sex hurts, I don't feel great in my body. Yes, yes, all of that. I know what that's like. So it helps me be able to know how to address it in therapy. And I think it kind of creates an intimacy between us and therapy, really understanding that. And then the client feeling safe and trusting that the therapy is going to be helpful. You know, that, okay, Mm. she knows what I'm going through. It's not just making recommendations or sending me to different providers. You know, this is someone that that actually knows what I'm going through. So I think it helps. So I, I know it is a fine line, but I think with something like this, and especially as women, we go through these issues and don't always have great advocates for us or support. And I think with this condition, you need a lot of support. Hey, listeners. Pause with me for a moment and take a big, deep breath. (sighs) Hopefully you aren't feeling stressed listening to this episode, but for the other hours in the day, we have something for you. I'm super excited to announce our sponsors for this episode. Introducing Calm, the number one app to help you reduce anxiety and stress and help you sleep better. If you head to calm.com slash S and S, you'll get 25% off a Calm premium subscription which includes guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, and focus, including a brand new meditation each day. They even have soothing music and more. I've been giving this as a tool for clients for years and using it myself, so I'm really excited, but also calm, that they have generously helped to sponsor this episode. Right now, Sluts and Scholars listeners get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com backslash S and S. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash S-A-N-D-S. Get unlimited access to all of Calm's content today at com.com slash S-A-N-D-S. Thanks so much. Back to the episode. So speaking of like needing support and helping your patients through this, I'm really curious about um, what it's like to cope with a chronic illness and chronic pain. And I don't think this only applies to endometriosis, but I'm curious about how it affects your life. I mentioned my friend Michael earlier, who like literally has to take work off. She has her own podcast about chronic illness, by the way, called Sick Day Podcast. Um, But I'm just curious how you support yourself and how, like, how does it affect your daily life? 
It, uh, it affects my daily life a lot because one of the symptoms is chronic fatigue. So you are oh. tired all the time. And you may not look tired, but you feel incredibly tired. And you may need to take more rest. And I've had to you know, reduce the type of exercise that I do. My whole lifestyle has to change. So for me, that mm. I had to let go of a lot of control because I also realized when you're dealing with chronic illness, you also have to, you have to slow down. You have to address stress, all the triggers that can make the symptoms even worse. So I had to reevaluate, you know, what am I doing with my life? What am I really, what, what makes me happy? Do I really want to be working this hard and running my body out or, you know, taking breaks? So for me, I, I've, I've slowed down a lot. I've you know, reduce the, the stress in my life. I've given myself a lot of permission to take it easy. And I think that is hard. Like you said, you're a friend, you're lying in bed all day because you're in pain. That has to be okay sometimes. And not mm -hmm. to judge yourself and say, oh, I should just, you know, power through it because I feel like I did that a lot throughout my early 20s and even early 30s. And I think that was part of the reason why it, it became such a problem. I think... Yes, it's one thing to accept it for yourself and like embrace your body, but what about the rest of the culture? Like with your friend's podcast, like sick day, there's only many, so many sick days. And I, I mean, you're, you're self-employed with your private practice, but like, how do we explain it to other people so they take it seriously and not... Yeah, especially, yeah. Yeah, especially as a, as a quote unquote women's issue of just like, oh, why are you on your period? Like, you know, that's And also just, like how the symptoms are like things that people experience, like most people experience, but like on a very minimal level. So when you're like, I have chronic fatigue, someone who like is not suffering from chronic illness would be like, girl, me too. When it's like completely different. Right, right. Or like, oh my God, I have really bad period cramps too. Like, I feel like that could feel like super invalidating or like frustrating and I don't know, just things that I'm thinking about in this space, but like, yeah. No, yes, frustrating, irritating, because everyone wants to give you advice. Oh, here's something that works for me, or, you know, my Do sister. Do yoga. My, I, yeah, I, oh, and it's so, I mean, that can add to your depression because you feel so frustrated and even more alone because people really don't get it. And you also hear, well, you look okay, or, you know, that's a thing too, because it, it's an invisible disease. People may you know, oh, you know, you should just, you know, try a little bit harder or just, you know, mm. get out of bed and push yourself. And it's, it's frustrating and irritating. And I had to realize who I talked to this, how, who I talked to about it in general. And I think uh, there was actually this woman who for a Halloween costume was someone suffering with endometriosis. And I remember I got so many calls from friends and people that were saying, did you see that? And she had this big, gnarly, bloody belly and bruising. And it was just so, that was validating for me to see someone step out and, and express that, hey, this is what it looks like on the inside and mm. showed it on the outside. It was really powerful. But for some reason, that representation helped I think people understand that it's it's much more than just I'm tired all the time or I have really bad cramps or heavy bleeding. It's, it's so much more. And I wish people had more uh, ways to, to really know. I'm actually writing my endo story right now and I'm going to put pictures of my surgery and it's going to be yeah. it's going to be gnarly, but I want people to see it. I oh, want this people is so to, exciting. To, yeah, my friend showed me their laparoscopic pictures. It's crazy. But to answer Nicoletta's question, like, so if you're not self-employed or you don't have the ability to just like stay in bed all day like what do you do some women actually get on disability because it's so it's so bad and they can't work actually in a lot of the forums and support groups that I'm a part of 
a lot of the women are not able to work full, uh, you know, full-time jobs. Or their and, job doesn't offer flexibility that would support their Right, care. and the medical bills are outrageous. You know, if I put together all the money I've spent in the last, you know, eight years on trying to figure it out to where I'm at now and surgery and treatment, it's, it's crazy. And it's, how much does insurance cover with something like this? I'm guessing not a lot. Not a lot. Are we surprised? No, not surprised. <laughs> how hard is it to get on disability? You with know, endo. It kind of depends on where you are, what state you're mm. in, but I think you know you have to really put up a case and you have to have a good treatment team to support you with that, but it's it's a battle. It's a battle every step of the way and for some women that are able to do that, it, it really makes a world of difference and you know again for coping and, and dealing with the day-to-day. But I'm just thinking about like the eight years before you get a diagnosis and I'm thinking about especially like lower income women and like just like having to slog through pain to like make ends meet and survive. And I'm just like, yeah, still so angry. (laughs) I guess this is a recurring theme for this episode. Like how the fuck is there not more research? And I know I am beating a dead horse, feeding a fed horse. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Well, that's why, I mean, even us talking about it, I think is a start. And the more we talk about it, the more people are aware. And I think that's, that's the only way we're going to get there with all women's issues, right? The more we talk about it, people are going to say, oh, wait, I heard them talk about this and maybe I have this or, you know, and and maybe that message gets out to bigger sources. But I I think we are seeing, seeing a little bit of a change. There's more organizations popping up. There's Endo Found and Speak Endo. And these are organizations with big voices that are starting to talk about it. And again, treatment is still an issue, but I, I think we have a long way to go with all women's healthcare issues. So yes. baby steps. <laughs> Speaking of ba- babies, <laughs> what, a, what, a dad, what a dad joke transition I just did. Um, I thought that was an excellent segue. Thank you. Um, now it's not because we've talked about it, but anyway... <laughs> Um, one thing, and not that this is everyone's like life journey, but one thing that it can affect is, is pregnancy and, and childbirth or the, the ability to, to conceive. Right. Um, how, how does it impact somebody? Somebody's fertility. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so infertility is definitely one of the big uh, causes, symptoms, uh, side effects of endometriosis. So first of all, if you have endometriomas on your ovaries, it's going to affect your ovarian function. So you may not, uh, you may not be ovulating uh, every month. So how it causes infertility is that obviously your endometriomas or these growths are on your ovaries, they can be on your uterus, they can be all throughout your reproductive area, which can just affect how you're ovulating. It can affect your hormones. And for, for most people, you're, it may cause a irregularity of hormones, which would cause you may be able to get pregnant but not be able to keep the pregnancy. So there's a lot of ways that it can cause infertility. And that's one of the reasons why they indicate laparoscopic surgery for women that are trying to get pregnant to remove mm. all those endometriomas, clean it up so then uh, your body is able to uh, support a pregnancy more. But because I believe there is that autoimmune issue, again, autoimmunity causes your hormones to be out of balance. So you may need hormone support and you know surgery or hormone treatment just to get things in balance if you're really, really wanting to, uh, to get pregnant. So there are options out there, but you want to make sure you have a good fertility team and, and uh, gynecological team advising 
Um, but the interesting thing is women that are pregnant, all of these conditions go into remission. So most autoimmune conditions will go into remission. So you won't during have any pregnancy? symptoms during pregnancy. So it's kind of interesting that you can't get pregnant, but getting pregnant is actually something that can help all of your symptoms. So That's why? probably why people recommend synthetic birth control, because isn't synthetic birth control telling your body that it's pregnant, like it's not having the spikes happen? Right, exactly. That's exactly why they recommend it. You know, it keeps everything at, uh, you know, at a normal level, which will reduce all those symptoms that are making you uncomfortable. When you do have the laparoscopic, laparoscopic surgery to remove endometriomas, um, how much time till you have to go back for another one? Like, what's the regrowth period? That's a good question. So mine was recommended uh, within six months. So it kind of depends wow. on what your, you know, what they find, which is kind of the big mystery. You're going under and you basically don't know what they're going to find. They don't know what they're going to find until they actually look in there. So um, depending on where you are, I said it was a stage four. So women can be anywhere from stage one to four, four being the most severe where there's just a lot to clean up. So the more you have to clean up, probably the more the sooner they would recommend you going back under and just getting it all out, especially if you're still in pain. So they kind of evaluate, you know, after your first two cycles, you'll still be in a lot of pain. At your third cycle post-surgery, that's when they're, they're really evaluating, you know, how, how's the pain, are th things are getting back into balance, and then they'll evaluate at that point whether or not they would recommend surgery. And what's the recovery time? How, like, how invasive are we talking? Is this procedure? It depends. Mine was a pretty intense surgery. So I was back to work in about two weeks, but still very sore. And uh, you're just not feeling great. I mean, you're, yeah. it's, inva it's pretty invasive. It's, it's not, you know, two small incisions, but it, it's still a lot of pain and swelling. And so it, it depends on your body and how well you heal. And I think, of course, the emotional part is, the toughest. And I had to take time for that, you know, just saying, you know, what the hell's going on with my body and just being really mm -hmm. upset about the whole thing, you know, surgery and getting diagnosed and then finding out that, you know, it's really severe. You just feel really, really hopeless. And so it took a while just to kind of get back to, you know, all right, pick yourself up and just, you know, get back to work, get back to your normal day to day and don't make this your entire focus. And that was important for me to remind myself that this isn't my whole life. This isn't my identity either. It's just something that mm -hmm. I'm dealing with. What's been most helpful about doing that and making sure you have balance in, in treating this, but also caring for yourself, like knowing that you can still do things, having intimacy. Right. I think it, it's, it kind of, it's important to get connection. So being with friends and family and partners and people that make you feel good and remembering that even though you're in pain in some parts of your life, you can still feel joy and have fun. And so it, it can be distracting, which I think is important. So you're not thinking about it all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a point where I was obsessing over it, reading everything and talking to people, trying to figure it out, you know, being a detective to try to say, what the hell do I do about this? But then had to say, you know what, just keep doing what you're doing. It's not everything. It's just one thing. And so that was a good reminder to not obsess what things have you found most helpful and supportive from other people in assisting you with this condition, either partners or friends? I'm thinking of things that people can ask partner, partners and friends to do and also people who are allies or a lover or a friend to someone with endo. 
I would say to just be supportive and never challenge their experience of what they're going through, validate and, and, and just be there. You know, sometimes I just needed to vent and needed a friend to talk to and just pour out everything going on. And I had really great people that were just really supportive and didn't try to give advice, but just listened and maybe even shared their experiences or their friends of friends experiences. So that helped. And I realized that there was such a bigger community of women dealing with this after I started opening up to my friends and family about it. So I think as a friend or even as a partner, I mean, my partner has been great too, because it was just a big thing that we both then had to deal with in so many ways, you know, surgeries and treatments and doctor's appointments. So I think it's good as a partner to get educated and understand what it is and ask questions. You know, my partner came to every doctor's visit when I was emotional and crying and I needed him to be there to listen and to hear what was going on and yeah. ask the, the really rational questions. So I think as partners, you should just be a part of the process and, you know, use the part of, you know, use your brain, you know, my, my husband's very analytical, so he was in there asking about, you know, probabilities and numbers. And so that was helpful for me to get some good answers from mm. the experts who were, who were, you know, recommending things. And for me, I was very emotional about it. Oh, I need to get another surgery. But he was really good at asking, you know, well, what's the, what are the chances this is going to reduce the pain and, you know, probability that this is going to really work. So I think partners can be good uh, at being there every step of the way. I mean, being someone who, who also treats couples, um, and, and I know for me, like I've had the opportunity to both empathize and help folks who are struggling with chronic pain um, from their perspective, but what it's like for the partner to maybe not be getting their needs met mm. when their partner is experiencing pain, whether that means like not having sex or the partner being tired or not connecting emotionally. Um, I wonder how we navigate that. No, that's a good question. You know, anytime there's there's needs not being met in a relationship, it just requires good communication and even validating what it's like for your partner. And I did that with my partner. I said, this must be frustrating having to hear about all this medical stuff all the time or always hearing about my periods or pain and discomfort. And it became, you know, the negativity that it was bringing in. And it was important to just kind of hear his experience and know what that was like for him. Was, is that diff I can imagine that would be difficult for some people, though, of not feeling guilty or ashamed that you're like, quote unquote, mm -hmm. causing right. this for your partner. Oh, right. Yeah, I had those feelings. You know, I felt and like guilty. taking up like emotional space. Yeah. Yeah. I remember at one point saying, you have a defective wife with a defective uterus. And, and then I had to sort of, sort of <sighs> say like, all right, no, 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 this is. And he was really good at saying, no, you know, that who cares about all that stuff? And, you know, we who cares if we, we don't have a family? You know, it's not it's more important for you to feel good and to feel healthy. So he definitely like walked me back partner. To, yeah. to, to normalcy. But I think, uh, you know, for couples dealing with this, you're just going to have to be creative. You're going to have to be creative with how you look at time spent together. And there were times where I would just be so tired, but we would just relax together. And we just changed the way that we looked at our intimacy. And I say creative because you, if you're dealing with any sort of sexual pain, you know, think outside of the box, try different things. You don't have to be having intercourse or even sexual activity that, that's going to cause a lot of physical pain. You know, try, try new things, figure new things out. That's the only way you're going to be able to, to address this issue together. Would you mind sharing some things that have been helpful for you? I think what we did was, uh, you know, especially dealing with low libido. I think it was just about, you know, 
trying new things like, like we didn't have to have sex so much, you know, the frequency and quantity of, of sex. I was feeling guilty about that because, again, I had a high libido. So I was used to wanting to have sex and having, you know, all types of sex. And I think for me, it was just about learning to relax even with my own expectations of what sex needed to be in our relationship. Mm. And so we, you know, we learned to do different things and we had non-sexual activities that were intimate and bonding. So uh, anything from, you know, I'm really into art and music. So we had things like that. You know, we would just paint together or listen to music or, you know, go enjoy shows, but things that didn't have to focus on sex or sexual needs. Mm. And I think if you're wanting to focus on sexual needs, like we've talked about in other episodes, just being creative with that menu of like what that can include. Um, So it's not penetration focused, maybe even not like genital touching focus, but like what are some other ways that you can build and connect in terms of like erotic energy, whether that be kink or massage, um, but being, yeah, being creative and finding things that you may not know that you like. Yeah. And I think touch is still important, even though you're in pain, but it's just maybe you want a different type of touch. So I I know that Mm. I still wanted tenderness and intimacy around touch, even though my body was physically inflamed or feeling, uh, you know, not feeling great. So it was just about learning different touch languages and, uh, you know, teaching my partner what did feel good and what type of intensity I could handle on days where I wasn't feeling so great. So I think it's a good learning curve for couples too to say, all right, let's expand what we think we already know about each other's bodies and do some, you know, sensual focus or massage. And that can be a good creative way to, to expand what you already think you know with your partner. Mm. Well, Dr. Chavez, thank you so much for joining us, especially during Endometriosis Awareness Month. I'm sure our listeners want to find out more about you and the work you do. How can they find you on the internet and social media? Yes, I'm at drshannonchavez.com and my social media handles are at drshannonchavez.com. But uh, I'm also going to be writing a blog about my story. So coming soon. So that'll be on my website, my endo story. We love anything that's coming soon. Um, On that (laughs) note, if you want to stay up to date with us and all the fucking awesome things we're doing, you can follow us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Slut Scholars, and of course, email us at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. Thank you. (laughs) 